What's up, world? Talcon here, and it's time for another book review. Today we're doing White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. All right, so professor of education at Washington University at the time of this publication, which I think it was published a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Let me see if it's down on the book cover, but um, I'm thinking about three or four years ago. Um, education at Washington University. Uh, some sources say she specializes in whiteness studies, which I didn't know was a thing, but okay. Um, let's start with, let's just lay the, I guess, the groundwork or the map surrounding not only this book, but just, um, I guess, CRT, Woke, just some different people that have kind of weighed in. And all of them, to one extent or another, mention Robin D'Angelo. So I'll start with John McWhorter, a linguist. Teaches at Columbia, about 55 years old. He's wrote a book every year, sometimes twice a year since 1997. He wrote a book called Losing the Race, Self-Sabotage in Black America. He wrote a book on why hip-hop can't save black America. He wrote a book about false black power. He wrote a book called Nine Nasty Words that included a chapter on the N-word. I would say that in this kind of national and kind of global woke debate, He's serving as the captain of the black conservatives. He puts in a lot of work and he trashes Robin D'Angelo on a regular basis. He's telling the Bill Meyer show that white fragility is best used to balance furniture in the house. He's often on a show called Blogging Heads. Um, it's the Glenn Lowry show. I think it's just called the Glenn show, um, which brings me to my next person, Glenn Lowry. So Glenn Lowry is a boomer, 72 years old. I believe he went to MIT, um, got a PhD in economics lived through the civil rights movement, used to be, like most black conservatives, far on the left. Then he went moderate. Then by the 80s, he voted for Reagan. Um, so I, like I said, he's an economist. But I always say this about black people, at least in America. You're usually born on the left, and you have to be convinced or persuaded in one way or another, over time usually, and it usually comes with age, to kind of move over to the right. And it's usually for market or economic reasons and most of these people have some type of degree that's STEM related or mathematical related or maybe even political science related. This is why it's significant that Glenn Lowry is an economist. I'm, so, I'm kind of starting to think that economists are my favorite public intellectual because when Glenn Lowry speaks, he makes a lot of sense, especially on his po podcast. Um, he's just able to connect ideas to topics that I think are more pertinent, most notably the economy. Um, so talking like social, social work, welfare programs, affirmative action, minimum wage. To me, economists make the most sense when they talk about this stuff, and they're usually far away from the left. Like I said, this podcast is worth listening to. And the, great, and the guests range from people like Cornell West to people like Charles Murray, which is a pretty wide range. Um, John McWhorter is also on there pretty consistently, but when he's not, there's usually some kind of special guest. And... Um, and they talk about these similar issues. The next person who's also, not necessarily currently, but in the past like 20 to 30 years, really the past 50 years, um, a very popular public intellectual, and that's Thomas Sowell. So he's my favorite. I would encourage you to go on YouTube and just watch some interviews of him talking about migration, talking about culture, talking about economics, talking about social welfare programs, talking about race relations, talking about politics and presidents. And he has good things to say about all this stuff. Another, um, another economist, 
He's written the mo he's written more books than everybody that I'm going to mention today. Um, he got his bachelor's at Harvard, and once he left Harvard, he kind of like grew to hate Harvard. He got a MA from some Ivy League school. I can't remember which one. Then he got a PhD from the Chicago School of Economics, uh, where he took classes under Milton Friedman. Um, two books that I recommend: Intellectuals in Society, written I think in the '90s, and then The Vision of the Anointed which was written, I believe it was published in 1995. So Intellectuals in Society is really good because it argues that people are kind of in a desperate need for crusades, both intellectual crusades and political crusades. And he kind of contradicts himself here because he criticizes people like Noam Chomsky, for example, who is a linguist, a popular linguist. Um, he talks about all sorts of ideas about hegemony, and international relations, all types of things that are outside the wheelhouse of linguistics, but he's made a career as a public intellectual. The Vision of the Anointed, I think, is even a better book. Um, it's along the same lines in that it argues that politicians make a living by creating fears, sometimes legitimate, sometimes irrational, so that people feel like they need to be saved. This is what he argues has, an effect, has infected the left and has created a sense of dependence by people of color on governmental programs and intrusion by third parties into people's lives. He's 100% against third-party intrusion on people's lives, promising to make their lives better. This is what he says like in almost every interview that he does, and he has dozens of them on YouTube and other type of like media platforms. For me, he's a little bit too social Darwinist or survivalist. Um, he, his main argument is that the black community struggles primarily because of their culture, which isn't too far from Glenn Lowry's argument. Glenn Lowry really focuses on family, Thomas Sowell does as well, but Thomas Sowell is a, a lot more kind of survivalist mentality. Like people make lifestyle choices and those lifestyle choices lead to different certain outcomes. And as you kind of listen to his arguments, you see how it gets a little bit out of hand. Okay, so now I'll go to the left. Ibram X. Kendi, PhD in history, teaches at Boston College. And I think his book stamped this powerful piece of, is really a really powerful piece in this entire argument. He tells the, story, the history of racist ideas in this book. And he kind of reviews all the civil rights heroes that we've kind of honored in education, um, or at least in like public school. He sets up three types of people in this book, in his book, um, Stamped. Uh, segregationists, assimilationists, and anti-racists. So segregationists are typically just basically racist. Think separate but equal type of mentality. Assimilationists are depicted as traitors and cowards. Um, so think somebody that's trying to act white, for example. And that anti-racist is kind of what right looks like. And he writes, and this is why he kind of follows Stamp, which is really a history book, with a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist Soon After. I think Kendi sets the stage and aligns black people in history on different sides of this issue. And you'll be surprised by where people end up, because he talks about people like Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, um, Booker T. Washington, W.D. He has a lot to say about W.D. Du Bois. Um, Angela Davis, who's like, who's like his hero, um, Toni Morrison, just a whole bunch of people in history that we kind of associate with black thought and really civil rights movements and things like that. I also think his title as a historian gives, it, gives him, I guess his historical claims, moral weight. Just like I think, um, just like I take Lynn Lowry and Thomas Sowell more, more seriously when they talk about social welfare programs, I take Kendi a little more seriously when he talks about history. Now, there are other people in this debate that are equally as important. Um, Derek Bell, who wrote 
Spaces at the Bottom of the Well, which is a book that makes a strong argument about the legal perspective when it comes to racial disparities in America. There's Carol Anderson and her book White Rage, which I reviewed a few weeks ago, and her claims that are, that are especially strong and really link laws made at the federal label, uh, level and how they're interpreted at the state level in a way that creates racial disparities. There's also Kimberly Quit Crenshaw, who studied under Derry Bell, coined the term intersectionality, and wrote a book on critical race theory. So there's a lot of players in this entire conversation. James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose also wrote a really good book called Cynical Theories, which I think is really useful because they attempt to trace the theoretical lineage of all the arguments on CRT side, and I guess gain a better understanding of the theoretical roots. So they talk people like Derrida, Faulkner, or Foucault, um, Judith Butler, a lot of postmodernists and feminists who took from postmodernism. Um, and then we have the author we're talking about today, Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo is definitely the most famous person right now in talking about race in America. The way I found out about her was that she was on, I think, CBS, giving an interview at like primetime hours about her new book called uh, Nice Racism. And this is how I kind of like stepped into this entire conversation. I didn't even know what was really going on. She's one of the few white people on the, I guess you could say critical race theory side or Black Lives Matter side. Um, she's an educational professional. Like I said, PhD in education. Um, she's affiliated with universities in one way or the other. I guess the first thing I wanna say about Robin D'Angelo is that She's kind of a new perspective inside these racial debates. There have been many political debates surrounding race, but I've never heard someone studying whiteness and education who goes to different places and teaches white people how not to be racist and writes books about race and says in the introduction that this isn't for black people, this is specifically for white people, and then makes a claim that white progressives do the most daily damage to people of color. It's just a voice that I've never really heard. It's a perspective I've never really heard, and it's a claim that I've never really heard. I heard about this book and thought I knew just by the title what it was going to be about and just by the criticism surrounding it. I thought she was going to explain how white people became fragile whenever it comes to talking about race or racism. Um, it's, kind of about, it's kind of about that, but not really. The first criticism that I heard about this portion of the book's argument is that white people don't have a monopoly on, or don't have a monopoly when it comes to being fragile in terms of race. Many people across all ethnic groups don't really like talking about race and will run away from the issue. Um, but when you open the book, there's a different argument. There's a different story that's told. I think the, the title, White Fragility, is really meant to sell the book, but the actual content does at least two things that I did not expect. So the first thing, the term defines whiteness as a race. She says, and I quote, being seen racially is a common trigger of white fragility, and thus, to build our stamina, white people must face the first challenge, naming our race. So if you ask someone like John McWhorter, he'll say that race is not a real thing. It's a construction that works to divide people, but not in any inherent or real way. Race is this sort of rule of difference that we live by because of cultural indoctrination. And I agree with this. I think this claim to whiteness might be kind of dangerous. Take Charles Murray's book, Facing Reality, for example. He fears that if white people 
take on identity politics in a large-scale way, then the violence that will ensue will be to a degree never before seen. And he uses the Capitol riots um, as an example of white people taking identity politics way too far. If we establish white as an actual race alongside other ethnicities, that makes it much more likely that they also adopt identity politics in a more intrusive and maybe even more violent way. The second thing this book does, outside of fragility, is that she offers a definition of racism that is completely inescapable, at least for white people. So this is my main problem with the book. And I don't think the book is bad overall. I know that it has a lot of criticism and people make fun of it all the time, but I think it has a lot to offer for people who wanna, I guess, make people of color feel more comfortable or wanna deal with racial disparities a little bit better or talk about racial disparities in a way that's not hurtful. But she basically argues that white people cannot possibly escape being racist no matter what they do. And that part I kind of take an issue with. So this is also why I think this book is kind of cultish. I sense a strong cult vibe here. I sense it's because if you let this book grab you, it might take you some crazy places. Like if you let it work its spell over you, you can go to some crazy places in terms of guilt. And I guess really for it would just be for white progressives because that's who the book is really targeting. But it wouldn't surprise me if something like this created some type of crazy cult. There's a reason why a white lady is the most famous person in a debate about racism in America. This book is hypnotic in a different type of way. She defines three, three key things in the very beginning of this book, prejudice, discrimination, and racism. So prejudice is prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs. Okay, discrimination is action based on prejudice. Okay, racism when a, is when a racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control it is and it is transformed into racism. So I'll just say that again. Racism is when a racial group's collective prejudice is backed by the power of legal authority and institutional control. What this definition of racism says to me is that only white people are capable of being racist. The difference here is in this quote, people of color may also hold prejudices and discriminate against white people, but they lack the social and institutional power that transforms their judgment and discrimination into racism. The impact of their prejudice on whites is temporary and contextual. So I always say that racism is an American thing. We're all racist in this country to a certain extent. I think race and political ideology are kind of our American form of tribalism. There's something inherent about humans and tribal instincts. It's all over the globe in different forms. And I think political ideology, in terms of liberal versus conservative, and race, primarily white versus black, are two big tribes that face off. Even feminism seems to be dominated by black feminism after Angela Davis, which I think provides a way to racialize feminist debates in America. Everything points to these two tribes. But Dr. D'Angelo is saying that we can all be prejudiced and discriminate, but only white people can be racist because their racism is institutionally supported. That's more at the heart of what this book is arguing. Racism is a structure, not an event, which allows it to draw power by being invisible. Can only be committed by white people. And then on top of that, it must be addressed 
and fixed by white people. So you see where all the agency, all the power, and all the responsibility goes to one group after she's defined this group. This is where I think the book Cynical Theories by Pluck, Rose, and Lindsay uh, can be of value. We talk about Foucault and the history of sexuality in this book, which relates to this idea of racism being invisible really well. I think discipline and punishment is really good, is really good for this too because of its exploration of, or its explanation of power and the, panoptic, the panopticon in prison uh, metaphor. It's the idea that through a system of examination, normalization, and surveillance, not really in that order, people can kind of be controlled and moved in very specific ways. Power becomes difficult to identify in the system. Take the military, for example. So you have basic training where soldiers learn that what the ideal soldier should be and do. That's indoctrination into a normalized system. They're examined for their skills through rifle marksmanship, drill and ceremony, etc. And then there's this hierarchy based on rank where anyone can correct you and punish you if you do something outside of that system of norms. It's the feeling that people are always watching you because no matter who you are, someone always outranks you and can discipline you. In this system, the soldier behaves correctly even when no one's around. And in this system, everyone has power because everyone outranks someone and is outranked by someone. So power is everywhere and power is nowhere. So just like power becoming invisible and being able to control or being able to control other people, D'Angelo is saying that racism is invisible and easy to miss due to contemporary definitions. In her view, and a lot of people's view, Kara Anderson also talks about this in White Rage, and she really explains it very eloquently, like associating it with the Nixon, or Nixon uh, administration. According to D'Angelo, um, racism isn't burning crosses in front yards. It's not people with white sheets over their head. It's not people saying racial slurs. This is why this book kind of leans toward a definition of racism that's inescapable but also invisible because it's much less common to be overtly racist in a way you might see in a movie based in like the American South in the 50s. Then she gets into a ton of claims about race as it relates specifically to white people. For example, she claims that white people don't understand socialization, white people can't be objective and unique, um, white people <clears throat> excuse themselves from the impact of the collective message of white culture, which kind of prevents them from understanding how that culture can be damaging. So in other words, they're avoiding their own internal racial fight. The big overarching goal, at least in the first part of the book, is, I guess, for white people to admit to an existence of white supremacy in America. So what's her definition of white supremacy? So I'll just kind of quote from the book. White supremacy describes a socio-political economic system of domination based on racial categories that benefits those defined and perceived as white. So that's a lot to take in, so I'll just read it again. White supremacy describes a socio-political economic system of domination based on racial categories that benefits those defined and perceived as white. So she says that naming white supremacy changes the locus of change from people of color to white people, where she thinks it belongs. So think about that. Change the locus of change to white people when it comes to race. To me, that says change the power in conversations about race from people of color to white people. Before that, she claimed that white is a race, something many people disagree with. And she also says that racism is something that only can be done by one group, white people. 
Not only is she defining a race, but she's also equipping that race with tools that can only be used by them and problems that can only be solved by them. This brings me to the book by Thomas Sowell, Intellectuals in Society. The idea that intellectuals will go on political crusades to rally troops for some grand cause, which this seems like a grand cause. A grand cause that can really only be fixed by a very specific way, or in a very specific way, by a very specific group of people, led by one person, kind of waving the flag of this. What I don't get from this book, White Fragility, is the resulting, I guess, collateral damage from all this. I mean, what are white progressives really doing to cause damage, and what does that damage look like? So my first reaction was that the damage that she does describe doesn't seem that bad. A microaggression here, someone doesn't understand my blackness there, maybe someone clutches a purse when, I, when they see me or when I walk by. The stuff doesn't really give me much of a headache, it doesn't make me upset, it doesn't really give me a stroke. I just can't really make myself care. Also, many of the critics of the book say that Robin D'Angelo makes millions telling black people how weak they are. And I kind of agree after reading the book. There's absolutely no agency given to people of color. Maybe she's afraid to insult black people by telling them to take charge or of their own lives, or maybe she doesn't feel like it's her place. But in this book, black people really don't have any power. They don't have a place of power. It's easy to be critical of this. The book is meant for white people, and she doesn't think white people listen to black people when they talk about race. Um, considering her fame, she's apparently right. And she has a lot of personal anecdotes where she talks about how she has to accompany black people when they talk to people about race at like companies and corporations just to give the black speakers more, I guess, legitimacy. So there's that. And then I'll end by talking about one term, one key term that she talks about in the very beginning of the book, and that is white racial frame. So this is a term by sociologist Joe Feagan that describes how whites, white people, circulate and reinforce racial, mes racial messages that position whites as superior. So this is the idea that white people from, I guess, form concepts of white superiority as they develop their ideas of race through whitewashed cultural exp exposure. They watch The Simpsons, celebrate Columbus Day, see statues of mostly white people, etc. That's kind of an example of this. All of this creates a racialized frame that's three levels deep. And she describes these levels. So there's a general level where whites are seen as superior in cultural achievement. There's an institutional level where whites reinforce superiority through controlling institutions. And there's the deep level where negative stereotypes about people of color are created and positive stereotypes about white people are reinforced. She attempts to persuade the reader to buy into this idea of the right racial frame by asking a series of questions that deal with how the reader formed their ideas about other races, like from childhood up to, I guess, adolescence or up to adulthood. Keep in mind, her audience is just white people. So she asked the reader to reflect on when they came into contact with people of color for the first time, what the, what the racial makeup of the bad neighborhood, like quote unquote bad neighborhood in their city or town was as a child, um, who went to the quote unquote bad schools, um, what did their neighborhoods look like in those quote unquote bad schools, etc. Like questions like that kind of implying that bad is usually associated with 
people of color. So wherever the black people live at in your city, that's going to be depicted as the bad neighborhood, like just automatically, whether it's bad statistically, whether it's actually crime there or not, those schools where the black kids go and where the Latino kids go are going to be seen as bad. And those neighborhoods where the black families live and Latino families live are going to be seen as bad. And white people are going to stay away from them. So that's kind of her point there. This goes along with the idea that if your school was primarily Asian and white, it was probably seen as good. I'm okay with that assumption, but I don't think it works in a book like this. Not as a persuasive tool anyway, because it sounds too much like an assumption. This leads me to another criticism of the book. It relies heavily on assumptions and personal anecdotes as persuasive tools and not enough on empirical evidence. There is empirical evidence there, and I'll get to that probably in another video, but a lot of the empirical evidence is based on like research that's decades old. She makes claims about how people think in the book, and I don't like her sources for this. I don't see enough citations from psychologists or psychiatrists. I see some from um, anthropologists and sociologists, so that's good, but there's a lot of claims about the way people think and, and come to their, I guess, arrive at their concepts of, of race. But when it comes to claims about what people think, she's very careful to frame it in the form of a question when she does. So it's not really a claim. So I guess that kind of saves her there. In conclusion, I think in the future, there's going to be two terms that stand out about books on race that are being written today. One is Ibram X. Kendi's term, anti-racist. And the other one is Robin D'Angelo's term, white fragility. So I think it's worth exploring and worth a few hours it takes to read the book, even though it gets tons of bad press. Next time, I'll go into her thoughts about racism after the civil rights movement. And just remember one thing, if nothing else. Loving's hard. Hating's easy. It's easy to complain and hard to be grateful. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.